everyone. Welcome to All the Things with Joel One. I'm your host, Joel One, and today is episode 24, and we've got a very special guest lined up, and that guest is none other than professional wrestler, timeless Levi Shapiro. And I'm very excited to have my first actual wrestler on here. We've had a lot of musicians on here, people in the music industry, but we've talked a lot of wrestling, but it's just been me and my friends. We haven't had any actual professionals in here to speak. So I'm very excited to talk to Levi and to see about how the California independent scene is doing. And we're also going to count down our top five wrestlers from the 80s. We're sort of doing an 80s theme here in all the things. I love that decade. So a lot of the upcoming episodes, I think we might focus on more 80s related topics, different 80s movies, maybe 80s albums. Uh, And today we're doing our top five wrestlers from the 80s with timeless Mr. Old School himself, Levi Shapiro. Very exciting stuff. Uh, Before we get started, what's going on with me? Not too much. Same thing as usual. I did happen to watch a new film that came out, an animated film based on some cartoons from my youth that I loved and still watch to this day. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? So the movie's called Scoob, and it's sort of an origin story. But uh, I really, I enjoyed it for the most part. I didn't think it was amazing, but it was interesting. I would have liked maybe a more accurate or sort of more like the cartoon portrayal of the gang and, and doing a mystery. And from what I understand, this movie is supposed to open up a whole new world of a shared universe of the Hanna-Barbera characters, which is why you got Dino Mutt and uh, Dick Dastardly and some other folks in uh, this movie, which is fine. And it'll be interesting to see if this actually works. And we do have a shared Hanna-Barbera universe. Can't wait for that Jetsons and Flintstones movies to come out. But it was cool. I would have maybe liked... Uh, Matthew Lillard to be the voice of Shaggy as opposed to Will Forte, but it wasn't that uh, jarring, I guess. But it was funny having a character named Dick Dastardly in 2020 and having them go back and forth with Dick, Dick, Dick in a kid's movie. But that's the actual character from the old wacky racers and all that stuff. So, you know, it's better to use the real name than try to come up with some new character if they're really trying to use this IP, use the Hanna-Barbera stuff. But anyway, it was good. Uh, it's available on all the streaming sort of platforms you can rent and buy things like Amazon and Voodoo and probably I- iTunes and whatnot. And if you're a fan of Scooby-Doo, I would say definitely check it out. It was pretty good. It was fun. All right. That being said, let's get into it. We're going to interview Levi Shapiro, talk a little wrestling, talk a little L3 music also. We'll see how my connection to Levi from our past uh, have brought us back together here now. Should be fun and exciting. All right, let's get to it. All right, hey everybody, welcome to All the Things with Joel One. I'm your host, Joel One. This is episode 24, and I am pleased to have a new guest, new to the pod. He is a current active professional wrestler, the current APW internet champion, the current Wrestling With Regrets YouTube champion, and he is a, believe it or not, two-time Jackie Fargo, Larry Sweeney, Texarkana strut-off champion. Is that right, Levi? That's, that's good enough. It's, it's got a bunch of different names. It's quite long, but that works pretty well. Yeah, we got Levi Shapiro, timeless Levi Shapiro here. 
on the, the pod this week, and I'm really stoked to have him here. How are you doing today, Levi? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I think it's going to be a cool little talk for us. I've been really uh, digging deep into my past right here, and uh, <laughs> I'm excited to see what we're going to talk about. Yeah, so uh, other than just a, a love of professional wrestling that we share, we also have a little bit of personal history and I used to be in a band a while ago called Once Over, and we were part of this East Bay, North Bay, Bay Area rock and roll scene that is often associated with L3. And uh, Levi used to come to a lot of the shows, and he was a big part of that scene. Wouldn't you say, Levi? Oh, man, huge, huge part. I'd say uh, one of the heartbeats. <laughs> Absolutely. What are, your, uh, what are your best memories of that time? Oh man, that's, that's a whole podcast in itself, probably to be honest, you know, but, (laughs) um, it it was a very coming of age thing for me. You know, I was, I was a young teenager at the time, you know, and just a couple of my friends and we would all go to these shows and just start meeting all these different people. We'd go to see the bands. It was just like such a community that absolutely uh, really kind of helped revolutionize who I'd become later on down the line, to be honest. I, I agree completely. And as a, We've been in different industries. I've continued down the musical path, but as a musician, I've never seen anything like that scene. Like there was something very special about that scene and how all the kids and all the bands and everyone sort of banded together and had a lot of fun and they just came out. And like when that scene sort of died, I've never seen it like recreated in any sort of capacity or with any kind of scene. Do you feel sort of similar? Yeah, totally. You know, and I always, I always refer to that scene whenever, you know, I'm trying to do something with um, a community of friends or wrestlers or something, or, you know, media associated because it was so communal and it was like the fans were so diehard. And then the bands, even they saw how much the kids really respected and had fun with it. It just made everything so much better, you know? Yeah. And uh, one of the best things that I think um, was just like, uh, it was just blossomed, you know, it was blossomed out of nothing. And it's, uh, there's many different scenes that were even around when it was happening, you know, and like Gilman and stuff like that. And yeah. I would go to shows at Gilman with my friends yeah. and that's where I would go after like a music cast closed, <laughs> but it, it, nothing, no, it never compared to that because it was such a different mix from all over, you know, kind of outcast in a way. Yeah. So, so were you East Bay based? Yeah, I was born and raised in uh, Richmond, Richmond, okay. California. So, I, Music Cast was like your spot. Yeah, that was that was a you know, I, like I said, I knew Gilman and stuff like that. Yeah, and I was was raised. My dad was in a band, um, kind of a jam band, you know, uh, Grateful Dead esque. He went on tour with Wavy Gravy actually in '84, and so they wow. were really rooted in Berkeley. Yeah. So I had that whole hippie vibe, you know, growing up. But then when I kind of broke out into the kind of punk rock and even pop punk and ska, yeah, uh, iMusic Cast is really what took me farther than like what grungy Gilman offered. <laughs> I, I love the Gilman. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, totally. I, I've spent many, many of my favorite shows at the Gilman, but iMusic Cast, there was there's something special about that place and I, I miss it. I can't believe that it's gone still, you know? Yeah, it, it's... uh. I don't know, man, especially just something that's happened to me. Maybe it's, you know, I'm turning 30 years old this year, but just like reminiscing and seeing that place. And I drive by, you know, 55th and Telegraph all the time. Yeah. And it's like, 
I truly, truly, truly miss it. Yeah, man. So it's uh, so ahead of its time. It was, yeah. Broadcasting know? on the internet, like it's crazy. Yeah. It's, when was that? It was like um, it was almost even twenty years ago, early two thousands. You know, two thousand three, four, five. Like it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And and to think, you know, I mean, like when we started the conversation earlier, it was man technology today, you know, and it's so easy <laughs> for anybody to go live. Yeah. And, but Brian was just really, oh, he just. He captivated it, man, you know, yeah. like yeah. UK Jess even, you know, and just uh, being a fan from England and diehard and being able to see these bands on the Internet through just, you know, word of mouth almost, you know. Right. I remember also being on stage and like they would have the monitors on stage, like the actual video monitors, and you could see the people chatting and like like doing uh, live chats and we like they would, you, you'd get the criticism like, Oh, this band sucks or whatever. Or then <laughs> people would talk about, Oh, this is super tight. Like, Oh, look at the guitar player, whatever. And it was, it was fun for the bands to read that stuff too. It was definitely ahead of its time. The whole social media thing we world we live in now, you know, like thrives on that sort of co- uh, connection with people. And this was, Oh yeah. It's almost verbatim too, you know? Yeah. Uh, Cause they had a, they had a computer out in the audience. I remember. And you know, we yes. were all stupid teenagers doing all <laughs> stupid stuff. Right. Yeah. So I would go up to that computer and just type a whole bunch of what have you and just, you know, talk crap and everything and laugh at people that couldn't be there live or something. Like, yeah. Really being a dick about it. Yeah. It was good times, man. So just real quick, if you can, who were your, some of your favorite bands to watch or to see during those, those L3 era days? Um, you know, off the bat, you know, I got to give the love to the matches, right? Because they were almost like the godfathers of the L3 scene. They were, absolutely. And uh, they were the, the ones that I really went to see at first, right? But then, like, I missed Locali Am, oh, which yeah. I really wish I could have seen a lot more of. Mm. Because I always liked them, but then... Those the those were my boys. Would... Come again? Those were my boys, Locali Am. Yeah, and that was like... My first show, actually, my first L3 was Low Cali M's last show. Oh, damn. And, um, damn. So I, I was, like, in line, actually, throughout the night, and I watched Low Cal set through the door. Shit. And then we finally got in just for the matches set, you know? That and, was a, uh, a very emotional night for me. Yeah. Uh, I was, I don't know I, if, if you even know my history, but I was actually the, the roadie, quote unquote, or the sixth man for Low Cal Am. I, I did their merch. I drove the van. I did all kinds of stuff for that band. And when they broke up and when they had their last show, like, I, I think some tears were shed for sure. Oh, man. I see. I, yeah, I saw a whole bunch, you know. And um, I'll kind of go a little bit more into this in a second, but like, you know, Manic and Gabe and, yeah. uh, he, he kind of was like a, a tutor, you know, as I kind of got deeper into the L3 thing, but he was so emotional and he always puts over yeah. low count of the biggest thing, you know? And, <laughs> um, so it was, you know, that I really wish I'd see low count more, but like the diehards are basically Dessa, oh, yeah. uh, tragedy, Andy mm-hmm. go on red was huge for me. You yeah. know, um, I really dug plain white tees mm-hmm. like during the stop kind of stuff, you know, right during that and era. not that I don't list like, don't uh, like their stuff now but it's just out i felt like a lot more um associated with that album personally and i, I loved once over too to be honest you know you guys always 
uh, rocked, especially when the verge kind of was starting to kind of go. Yeah. You guys were like a pretty heavy part of that, uh, that spot in my eyes. Yeah. That was a little closer. I and mean, probably about an even distance for us. We were a Napa band, you know, so we had to travel to get okay. into the, the scenes, but, um, yeah, I was going to ask you if you were into verge or if that was uh, too far away for you, but the verge was a whole sort of separate kind of entity, but also a lot of the same bands. And it was the, the guy, Mario, who ran that. It was an awesome guy. Uh, you know, yeah a, oh that was cool it was a good spot and when it opened up you know and i'm i'm right in richmond so that's like 15 minutes from my house across right across the bridge. the bridge yep um and i actually met a few a few friends that i still talk to to this day uh at the verge you know oh, and cool. uh just great time all around honestly yeah and just to backtrack a second you mentioned manic and uh i i love that guy <laughs> he he was always at the shows and i actually randomly i think it was in 2011 or something i went down to like a wrestling convention down in los angeles and it mm-hmm. was like ring of honor was there and there was a pwg show and all this stuff and uh i was just walking the convention hall and i, I think icp was there <laughs> like in the, yeah so i know I, I know they were actually because i shared an elevator with shaggy too <laughs> Uh, but uh manic was there and i hadn't seen the guy in a couple years you know in a long time and i walked up behind him and i was like dude do you remember once over and he looked he turned around i was like holy shit you know like and we had a nice little reunion and it was uh it was cool seeing him and i still i follow him on facebook and stuff that guy's that guy's a nut but he's a fun nut he's he's cool yeah you know i mean he's kind of like i've always gave him the credit of being pretty instrumental to opening the door to wrestling for me, to be honest. Really? Um, well, yeah, you know, so we started going to these L3s, you know, and, you know, we would always hang out and me and Brandon Freeman were, you know, childhood homies and we would all go to the shows with his sister, Kate. So it was like such a, in like a community of things really. And then we just became solid and I always loved wrestling, mm. but no one ever else loved wrestling in my town or anything. Right. So it was kind of like, I wasn't closeted about it. I watched it freely and didn't care, Yeah. but manic was like knee deep in, and he was trying to kind of do the wrestling, you know, hardcore ultra violent CZW <laughs> was really big yeah. at that time. Yeah. And, uh, so we hung out more and more and, you know, like, he would always like, you know, oh, you're not ready for this, blah, 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 blah. And then I finally like, went over his house and we watched CCW tapes. Oh, man. And it was like Sick Nick Mondo and Wife Beater and Lobo and <laughs> like all these like crazy, my, my mind is exploding, you know. So we hung out more and more. We'd go to shows and, you know, he started calling me Grasshopper because we would always, you know, try to, you know, smoke or get some uh some booze and mix it with squirt and starburst because that's what gabe liked to do with peppermint schnapps oh man and uh, that's funny and um just you know so one day he's like hey man like uh i always thought that i couldn't train until i was 18 hmm. that was always just embedded i didn't know that if i like went around to shows i could probably just hang out and just kind of like get to know and just get smartened up right, right. that's kind of what i learned down the line but I would just, you know, he's like, hey, me and my buddies are doing this backyard show mm. in San Bruno. You know, you should come out. We should do it. And, like, I remember sitting at his house, and we had pad and papers and stuff, and we literally, like, wrote out spot for spot, our like, our match that we were going to do. You know what I mean? That's cool. And that was kind of wild. And then we, you know, we did the whole – so he really opened it up. We even started training together when I got – you know, because we did the backyard thing for a while. Yeah. And then – 
um, yeah, we I, had a pretty good following. So this is a, a good transition into the sort of wrestling world. And I can imagine similar to music, like when I was in the last band I was in and even in once over, like practicing and rehearsing was like, was key. And I know a lot of those other bands, Dessa and locale and, and the matches like practicing and rehearsing. Like there's a lot of yourself. You have to give up a lot of your life. You have to give up if you want to accomplish that goal. And I would imagine for you, chasing your dream of being a pro wrestler, it's the same thing, like changing your lifestyle, getting into that lifestyle of training and learning and getting out there. Is that sort of what you would say? hundred percent, man. You know, um, hundred percent. You're really just dedicating it to, and you know, and it's been, it's, it's wild for me to say this, man, but it's been about 10 years now that I've been wrestling. Wow. That's cool. And, um, you're always going to learn, you know, and then it's, it's in stages almost because when I first broke in, that's what it was, man. It was, you got to go to training. You got to go to training no matter what you can't do this. You can't do that. You know, your mom wants you to come for some birthday parties. No, I got to go train. Yeah. You know, this, you, you, you got to sacrifice, right? And that's with most things, you know? Right. Uh, I remember one time I, I couldn't make it to a training and, uh, so it was like a Saturday morning or something. And it was in Martinez and I didn't have a car and I just couldn't get there for some reason. Yeah. So the next training I had to squat for a half an hour straight huh. with uh, a minute break every five minutes. Wow. And that was hefty. It's a, it's character building is what that is. <laughs> totally. Oh, it set, it set the bar for what's to come, you know? Yeah. Well, um, so you, so you've been in the game about 10 years. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Professionally. How, right. Um, what are the sort of the best places to work as a North Northern California guy? What are some of the, I know APW, but what, what else, where else is there around here? Yeah. Uh, there's a whole bunch all over, to be honest, you know, um, going into central California, even Southern California in Northern California, you know, it, there's really an experience level, you know, because, Wrestling is so diverse now. It's not as protected as I would say as it was in the early nineties, something where you would have only a few, like one or two areas, you know, and those right. areas have wrestling ran by uh co promoter, you know, but just togetherness, right? It's not as together as it was back when it was a little bit more sanctioned. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, you have like some backyard stuff, you know. And then you have some kind of lower, you know, newer guys that are training and kind of training schools that run shows. And then you have more shows like APW and stuff like that. So there's a, there's a good chunk, you know, um, I trained at devil mountain wrestling in Martinez, which ran out of the Martinez boys and girls club for a long time. That kind of transitioned into East Bay pro wrestling. And that's in Pacheco right now. Uh, they've got good stuff. You know, they have a nice building, bunch of good kids, you know, a lot of new generation guys that if they stick with it and are really dedicated to the craft, there's opportunities and even an opportunity to get built out of that place, you know, as to where like APW is great, but there's no, once Roland Alexander died, yeah, the garage and stuff, there's no real central home for it. You know what I mean? We mm -hmm. run kind of the same two or three um, buildings, you know, but it's more of just like a, a show rather than a school and a show, which is okay. You know, it shouldn't, there doesn't need to be 38 schools in, in a 12 mile <laughs> radius. You right. Know? Yeah. Well, um, that's... So 
Off the bat, I'm going to say East Bay Pro Wrestling is a nice one. You know, they have a lot of close ones to me. All Pro Wrestling is a star-studded, you know, show every time. West Coast Pro Wrestling is a promotion I'm involved with that's really on the rise. Is and that it's going to really West Coast? Is that the the TV show that you host? No, that's actually um, so. Championship Wrestling from Hollywood is based out of Hollywood in Southern California with Dave Marquez and the United Wrestling Network. Okay. What they've started to do is try to promote their show in um, territorial markets again, because Dave's a TV guy, like specifically, you know? Mm. And so he airs the Hollywood footage, right? But we kind of mask the show as a local show. So you get local <laughs> hosts, you get local promos and stuff like that, but okay. all the footage is shot in Hollywood. I was wondering, because that was when I was watching a little bit of it, I watched a few different clips and I thought it was something from Hollywood, Championship Wrestling from Hollywood. But then I, the most recent thing I watched, it was you and your co-host. And they, I think I thought they called it Bay Area Wrestling or something like that. And I was like, huh, interesting. But uh, so. Yeah, well, the the sponsor for that, because it airs up here, um, Channel 7, Saturday nights into Sundays, 2, 2.30, I believe, hmm. which is like, it's awesome to be on channel seven, you know what I mean? Right. No matter what the time slot is major network. And that is sponsored by another promotion that is ran up here. That is West coast pro wrestling. Okay. Okay. So it's a really smart business decision. I think to have a local promotion sponsor the TV spot. Cause if that TV spot gets good views, then we're going to probably move it into uh, filming the TV up here. Yeah. You know, if the, if the, if the market demands it, then let's do it. And I think it's really going to, the COVID-19 stuff really threw a huge wrench in not only just professional wrestling as a whole, you know, right. Especially the stuff that we had planned. Yeah. Um, I mean, coming out of mania and everything, man, I was, I had such some, some really good stuff lined up that I'm upset to see it kind of fall through. Yeah. I was going to ask you actually about the state of indie wrestling with the whole COVID-19 thing. So I, I would imagine without having shows with people in it, there's probably not a lot of independent wrestling going on right now. Is that true? I'd say, you know, I've seen, I've seen shows advertised for next week in like Oklahoma. Mm. And I've seen like a, how do it like a drive-in theater show? <laughs> like, these guys in San Diego, these guys are like setting up the ring and then they allow cars to park around the ring, yeah. like drive in theater. And then they transmit the commentary over the, uh, the radio. You got to get um, creative. But, <laughs> so there's, yeah, that's about it though. Other than WWE and AEW who yeah. are still putting out weekly shows live. Right. You know, I, don't, I wouldn't say fully live maybe. But. No, right. I think for, for them, for the big companies, it's given them a little bit of freedom to do sort of interesting different things like the, the Boneyard match at WrestleMania or the, uh, the Cena Bray Wyatt house, house of Did fun or whatever. Did you watch the, uh, the money in the bank match? You know, I actually have not watched that match yet. I heard that was interesting too, going to the top of the building and Baron Corbin committing some murders. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but, you know, like, all right. So I'm a wrestling purist, right? That kind of goes along with my character. Right. I truly love, professional wrestling and there's so many decades centuries almost that it's been around 
And people really only think about the last 20 years, right? Because it's really one of the bigger boom periods. Yeah. And, uh, but like being a purist, I watch WWE sometimes and you got to know that they're trying to evolutionize themselves and trying to change in the format of today's world. So as the money in the bank match is probably one of the worst wrestling matches of all time. <laughs> I couldn't help but watch it and was just like so entertained. Oh, cool. I was so entertained at what they brought, you know, and the Baron Corbin thing was funny because he throws these guys over the ink and it's like, I'm like watching it with my brother. I go, is that, is he supposed to, it's like, is that supposed to be him throwing them off the roof? <laughs> like, right. how, how are they going to explain this? You know? And then the, the next night on raw, they literally had Rey Mysterio cut a promo saying Baron Corbin threw me off the top and I landed six feet below on the other platform. <laughs> like, Oh, so they had to cover it up because people were going bananas. over it. Yeah. I definitely saw the clip of that. I didn't watch the show live, but uh, people were telling me about that as interesting spot. But yeah, I do think that for the, the major companies, they're, they're having to, to go out of their comfort zone a little bit right now and do some different things. So that's cool. It was an entertaining match. I agree sort of the, the uh, Money in the Bank matches are usually kind of clusterfucks or big kind of just big spots and not a lot of stuff going on otherwise, like not really yeah. a story being told per se. Um, but uh, on, on that same note, though, the, you know, the COVID-19 wiped out the entire WrestleMania week. Oh, yeah. It's the biggest week like, for you guys, right? Some, yeah, huge. I mean, millions of dollars probably lost, guaranteed, yeah. you know, between, you know, there was like 67 shows in three or four days in Tampa alone Jesus. or surrounding, you know? Yeah. And so all these independent, and, you know, these guys were going to bring in like Grey Muda for these indie shows or all these big names and stuff. And um, some are probably won't be able to come back for a while. And well, some probably have, some backing which luckily can afford it but yeah uh the the biggest of hits i'd say to it yeah I, it's it's crazy how big wrestlemania has gotten in that sense i i've been to one wrestlemania i went to wrestlemania 26 in phoenix and we we sort of did the whole me and my my friends we went and we went to Dragon Gate USA and we went to Ring of Honor and we went to the Hall of Fame and we tried to, to do as much as we could do. And I think even then, that was 2010 or something, uh, I think even then it was sort of still in its building phases. I've I've heard about the weekends now uh, for WrestleMania and how, like you said, 67 shows. Like, it's crazy. It's like the wrestling week for independent pro wrestler wrestlers, for oh, major yeah. league wrestlers, for wrestling fans from all over the world. Like, it's, it's the place to be, you know. And and it's worth it as a, as a performer, even it's like, if you're not booked, you should still go. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. if you can get somewhere to stay and you're just going to rub elbows, you never know. You bring your gear. Right. Uh, it's such a good networking thing. And that's truly what the best part of it is. But there's like, you know, uh, the guys kind of like on top this year, like Warhorse and Danhausen and Effie, you know, these guys were going to wrestle like 14 shows yeah, in like two or three days. And like, you know, good for them. I'm super about it. But I had three shows and I was ecstatic about it. Yeah. I was like, that's, that's awesome. awesome. That's cool. Yeah, that's that's hopefully next year this stuff will be cleared up and you guys can get back to work at WrestleMania, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, next year it's in L.A. Oh, perfect. I, oh, I, yeah. You know, so we got some we got some big plans, actually. I'm 
I've got some big, big, big things hopefully in the works, and hopefully we get to pull some big triggers for Mania weekend. Yeah, I forgot my friends and I were talking about going next year. That's right, Los Angeles. Uh, so if 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 it's a thing, maybe I'll make it down there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so before we get into the top five of the 1980s, I did want to ask you about uh, would he be your manager, uh, Brian Zane? Is that his name? Yeah, Brian Zane. Uh, he's a he's an influencer. Right. Yes. I, I I have to say, I've been watching a lot of your YouTube clips, and I'm I'm a big fan of his his you know his talking and his, his I'm a big fan of his work. I think it's an interesting match between the two of you guys, uh, or an interesting pair. And I think I you know as a as an old school fan, I like I like his delivery. I like his whole persona. Are you guys like old friends, or how did you hook up with him? Yeah, well, you know, when I was training at uh, Martinez, you know, my my trainer brought him in to be a manager for me. Mm-hmm. And this was before he did any of the YouTube stuff or anything like that. And so, uh, you know, we've worked with each other on and off and stuff like that. And when he started his channel, um, you know, he was actually trained by Playboy Buddy Rose to oh, wow. wrestle. Huh. Um, so he's from Oregon originally. And he was trained by Colonel De Beers and Playboy Buddy Rose. So. He knows his stuff, yeah, you know, for sure. and so um, he and he has the cornet kind of vibe and stuff like that. And yes. him and Cornette were real cordial until Cornette finally blocked him on Twitter, which is a funny thing. <laughs> wow. And um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cornette's a hot spot, right? Right. Well, that's that's clear from his history. What, what did he do to get blocked from Cornette on Twitter? You know, something small or something. I think some guy that Cornette was arguing um, you know, cause Cornette is a purist and he won't give it up, you yeah. know? And I, I truly, I listen to his podcast all the time and, you know, of course he's not right on everything and he's a little outdated on a lot, but his wrestling knowledge is there. Right. Right. But so I think Brian said something of the corks telling another guy, another old guy, like, you know, uh, just something like I'm, I, I'm, I'm feel free to watch whatever I want to enjoy or something. Mm-hmm. And so Cornette responded with, "Well, yes, you can, Brian, but not on my timeline." Blocked. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> it was funny because Brian is kind of on the channel. He was Jim Cornette's kayfabe son, you know, <laughs> because the channel got popularity when he finally did an interview with Jim Cornette. Mm. That's and uh, so he, he, he made a video that week and he's kind of done up in his cornet gear and he sits down in front of the camera and opens a drink and he goes, well, Thanksgiving is going to be awkward this year. Yeah. And then it was a video telling his fans how he got blocked. Disowned by his own father. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, so man. he, he kind of just was uh, in and out. And once he started the channel, he came to uh, manage me and my old tag partner, buddy Royal, when we were the classic connection mm. And uh, we just, you know, he, we cooked up together and APW and stuff like that. And then me, when me and Buddy split up, Brian just got this regret title made. And he was like, hey, I'm going to put it on you and let's try to, you know, guilt offended here. And I actually went out and did a empty arena match in Indiana one time for it, which was pretty cool. Barry Windham was doing a seminar that day. Huh. And uh, so he was just like in the background behind the curtain listening to this empty <laughs> arena match, which I consider a, a checklist. Absolutely. That's a, that very window, man. That's old school. Yeah, it was cool. We, we did a seminar and it was just like, it's funny because, you know, 
sometimes you'll go to these seminars and this is probably breaking a little fourth wall, right? But then, you know, these guys just talk for a while about ideas or something like that. Some guys really are hands-on and stuff like that. Barry Wyndham's like, yeah, just get in there and punch the guy. You know what I mean? And we're like, we're working on our punches and stuff like, and he's just watching them. Yeah. So, okay. You know, right, now kick the guy. So, okay. You know, all right. <clears throat> Any questions? It's like, oh, that's, that's the seminar. Okay. Wow. It's interesting. Um, well, so, so Barry Wyndham, that's a good transition. Now we can get into our top five. Barry Wyndham was a prominent guy in the eighties and, uh, the 80s is a decade. Actually, before we even jump into that, I, I just I'm wondering when you grew up or what what was what you liked to watch when you were getting into wrestling. Like for me, I was a, a child of the 90s and I was, you know, big into the Monday Night Wars and stuff. But when I when I discovered ECW is sort of when the world opened up for me, which I think is a, a lot of kids tales of that era. But I used to trade tapes and stuff and I, I would get into the old WCW NWA stuff. And so I had and I like the old WWF stuff, too, but I didn't really have any sort of influence or major exposure to anything else until I sort of became an adult probably in the last 10 or 15 years, I really got into WCCW and some of the old new Japan and all Japan stuff and, uh, AWA and, and like just kind of opening my eyes to the territories a little bit. Uh, but what about you? What's your history with, with pro wrestling in general? Like how did, what did you grow up on? Well, like I said, I was born in 90. Right. And one of my earliest really memories is like, uh, the bushwhackers walking to the (laughs) ring on like a superstars or, um, it's very odd, but Crush coming out to the ring in WrestleMania nine because oh. it had the whole toga thing, you know? Yeah. So that, that's about like where I, I, I was a WWF kid. Mm-hmm. Luckily I had a video store down the street and they had all the old Coliseum videos and stuff like that. Dude, me too. Uh, same, same thing. That's what I grew up on was watching those old Coliseum videos rented from the mm-hmm. local video store. hundred percent. And you know, I was definitely afraid of the undertaker as a child <laughs> and I loved Mr. Perfect. You know what I mean? And so yeah. <clears throat> that was really the jump point. Obviously, as I got older, you know, in the you know later nineties, me and my brother would watch the Monday night wars and stuff like that. And then I kind of faded out. I, I am <clears throat> 99. When I saw ECW on TNN, mm-hmm. me and my friend thought it was awesome. Yeah. Right. But I was still such a WWF guy. It was cool. I didn't dislike it or anything. I thought it was awesome. But um, I kind of fell out around 2000, came back in 2005, kind of at the end of my music cast. Yeah. And then just nosedived, right? Nosedived in just everything, everything I can absorb from all over this and that. And I it started really to become a territory guy, you know, and, really started watching the old 80s stuff and i wanted to kind of you know get the knowledge i've seen all the 90s stuff already and i was current on all the 2000 stuff right yeah so i just kind of started going back and dusty Rhodes and terry funk mm. and just like the more back i went the more interesting it was you know yeah, I think that and must so, have probably had an influence on your character, right? Because you're, you're Mr. Old School. Like, that's kind of your, your gimmick. And you do a lot of those yeah. those great old school moves. I've seen you do test of strengths and back rakes and, you know, uh, your your finisher, the claw. Like, that's, that, that is straight from the 80s, you know? Straight up, you know? And that's really what – and so it kind of got to a point when I got older where it was like, I am born and I, I love – 
early 90s WWF, right? That yeah. is like what my heart is based on. Mm. But then, you know, I mean, Ray Stevens, man, you know, the Destroyer, Terry Funk, the Rhodes, you know, um, Dick Murdoch, like all these like really like who influenced the people that we watched was really where my mindset kind of came. Right. Like, do you know, Macho Man and Macho Man was inspired by Pampero Furpo for the, oh yeah, because Pampiro used to say that. Mm -hmm. And Macho grew up watching him and he adapted it, you know? Yeah. Just like Shawn Michaels, that flip in the corner was the Ray Stevens spot, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So it's about paying tribute to these guys that paved the way, you know what I mean? And it's all about evolution today. All the independent guys want to talk about how the business is evolving and stuff like that, right? And I'm so torn because I want it to evolve, but I want it to evolve with respect. Right. And that's what Jim Cornette complains about is that no one gives the business respect anymore because everyone wants to go out and do all this new age stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, I live for any professional wrestling. You know what I mean? When I, when I was getting deep into like Michinoku pro and like grand Hamada and Ultima dragon, which was wild. And then I would watch, you know, um, Ricky Dozan versus, the destroyer from 1963 it just like it's such a different drastic thing and it was crazy um it's crazy to see it like that because some people are only stuck in certain things like and they never see anything else but they only watch hardcore you know heaven 97 and they don't watch <laughs> hardcore heaven 93 right you know mm -hmm. yeah i've i've in my mind have been a student of the game sort of also uh just enjoying me with all things with music with with film with all, all like that's the name of the podcast all the things i love pop culture and media and wrestling to me is no different it's it's a, a part of pop culture and i love to dive into the history and i love to watch the old stuff and like you say see where the stuff that i like came from basically mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. so like with all that being said your your character to me really is is a throwback and i appreciate that cuz it's a, it's a lot different than what you see in most most wrestling shows on tv for sure i don't know about the indie scene per se but you you definitely feel like you could fit in with the von Erichs back in 1982 or something you know what i mean like oh yeah that that's that's oh, man, the, you the said vibe it, and I that's my me. favorite year of wrestling actually <laughs> 1982 you, you nailed it 1982 <laughs> Mid-Atlantic, 1982 is like, that is what I'm sculpted from. You know what I mean? Awesome. That is, I, I've nailed it. It took me a long time to get to my number one wrestler that I'll tell you, but <laughs> it took a long time to kind of decipher, you know, where where it was. Just before we also get into it, it's interesting because I really got into a point, right, when I was wrestling. I wrestled in Sacramento against Mustafa Saeed, mm -hmm. right? And... um he was like, oh, you're old school, kid. Okay, all right, we'll get in there. And we get in and we wrestled. And I did nothing old school. You know, I thought <laughs> I was and this and that. And he comes back and he sits me down and he goes, oh, kid, that was, I wasn't old school. I'll tell you what, though, you want to know old school? You ever heard Swade Hansen? Go back and watch some Swade Hansen, some Rip Hawk. Wow. You know what I mean? Don't watch anything after 1984 because that's when the business changed. This is Mustafa you know, who told you this? Yes. Wow. Yes. You know, and he's old school, man. Yeah. He's old school. And uh, he nailed it. And he nailed it because that from that day on, that was maybe six, seven years ago. Man, I, uh, you know, that's how Timeless was born, I swear. 
that's a good story. Who, who would have thought from watching Mustafa that that's that's uh, he would have given you that knowledge? Right? Yeah. 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 And I'm I, I'm truly blessed for it. That's cool. Okay. Well, let's uh let's get into it. Top five wrestlers from the eighties. I, I know you said you maybe didn't have a, a definitive list planned, and I like to shoot to the guests first. Could you give me a, a number five? Definitely, definitely. I think to start off with the fifth, you know, we're going to go top fifth from the 80s all across the board. Definitely deserving. You know, I'm going to give it to Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. All right, Ricky Steamboat. He, he, he almost made my list. I was a big fan of Ricky Steamboat. Uh, of course, his matches with Savage and with Ric Flair come to mind immediately for me. Uh, but he did a lot of other cool stuff uh, with uh, Young Blood, right? Uh, and yeah, he he Some had early a tag stuff. He had a good career in the '80s. What what do you remember about Steamboat? Yeah, you know, he, uh, just a a consummate babyface. Yeah, you know? totally. Um, you couldn't you couldn't make him a heel if you tried, you know. And that <laughs> was really probably one of the uh, the biggest factors for him having such a longevity, you know. Uh, one of my favorite stories is because, you know, he had two runs with Flair in the 80s. Right. Early and, and then so later. so that first one, yeah, it was in 82. Yeah, okay. And uh, he did, uh, he did like, the face, like, Flair, like, rubbed his face on the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, backstage, they had to make it look like it was real. So Harley Race goes up to him with sandpaper oh. and says, hold here, kid, this might hurt. And he scraped the crap out of his eye. So it resembled... <laughs> that he actually got hurt and he had to walk around with that for like the next couple of weeks. That's crazy. They, they kept it real back in the day. Dedication, man. And of course, Harley race would do that. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Ricky Steamboat. That's a great pick. And the guy was a technician too. You know, he, he wasn't just a, a high flyer or whatever, you know, he, he could really, in my mind work. people still say that that match with Savage at WrestleMania three is like one of the greatest matches ever. And I would say, Oh yeah all the stuff with flair, the early stuff. And then the, the trio of matches he had, and what was it? 89 or at the end of the year? Uh, yep. Th- those were also like, that was kind of my introduction to eighties NWA style wrestling. Like when I came up, I knew WCW, but I didn't really know that old or like NWA WCW. And, and I remember getting mm-hmm. a VHS tape of, I don't know, Chi town rumble or one of those. Uh, and it was Ric Flair and, uh, and Ricky Steamboat it was really, really awesome match. Really opened my eyes, you know. Oh yeah, those are revolutionary. He he was such a good talent, you know. Yeah. And he's a nice guy. I've met him before. He's I, really nice. I would have totally believed that. I mean, he <laughs> seems like it. Uh, you know, the, the white meat baby face. All right, so that's a good good starting point. My number five is um, a little more obscure, and I I, I picked him to kind of get some cool points with you because i'm sure you'll know this guy but i think a lot of people don't know this guy and uh he's another one of these wrestlers that was struck down too soon but i really loved his promo work and i think his character was sort of revolutionary in terms of what other wrestlers did after him and that's uh gino hernandez hell yeah gino hernandez i really enjoyed like i say his promos and his work with chris adams and uh as a team and then feuding with each other um, uh, that was kind of the first feud I really got into or the few, first guys I got into when I was rediscovering discovering for the first time WCCW, uh, you know, everyone gravitates towards the, the Freebirds and the Von Erics, which I was interested in that too, but there's something about Gino mm-hmm. Hernandez that I was just drawn to. And, um, he died, I don't know what, 86 or something, 88 maybe. 
And I guess it was a cocaine overdose, so we never maybe got to see peak Gino Hernandez. But um, you... actually, it was it was it might have been a hit. Right, I had read that. Like they first called it a murder, but then they said it was an overdose. So, what do you know about that? Um, well, there's actually a, a, I don't know if you know about this. There's a new wrestling show on Vice called Dark Side of the Ring. Absolutely. Is there an episode about this that I haven't watched? There is an episode. There is oh, an episode shit. I think from the first season. Oh man! Or like, what, what, what did they theorize? Uh, that it was a hit. I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm catching that right. I don't think I'm thinking it wrong, but well, yeah, um, the, the, the small amount of reading I did on it, it seemed like there was maybe some suspicion about that, but then the police just sort of ruled it as an overdose, but just in oh, general, yeah, yeah, it's not solved. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, they get Gino's mom on there and everything and they don't know. Hmm. Um, but, uh, it wasn't, it was foul play. I'm pretty sure. Don't, I don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> I remember that being correct. Yeah, it's fascinating how things can go so sour. But the, the guy I thought was a good worker, and like I say, his promos and his whole look and persona, his character, like it was, it, it was. Oh, sort he of, had it. Yeah, yeah. He he. That's a good way of putting it. He had it, and it's a shame that he was cut down too soon. Yeah, I actually, um, I was actually watching that Dark Side episode, talking to my trainer, <laughs> and uh, he texted me, and he goes, "You see the way Gino drops his elbow?" I go, "Yeah." He's like, "You start doing it like that." You know, yeah. it's old school. No one does it like that anymore. And uh, and that's really what I think came from Gino was, again, ahead of the curve, you know. He would have survived a few years. He probably would have gone up to work for Vince yep. and really probably would have created some amazing character, you know. Right. The guy could, uh, could talk, you know, so. Yeah, he probably could have been the Stone Cold before Stone Cold almost kind of vibe. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, but I think he also might have gotten like caught in the shuffle if he would have maybe gone to like NWA or something. Yeah. Because he was a playboy and all that and all the flair, you know, it was kind of around. Right. It's a, uh, it's a decade of upsetting. decadence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a shame, but yeah, he was fun worker. Gino Hernandez, anybody who hasn't watched him, go check out some stuff on YouTube or whatever. A guy's a guy's a good guy. What do you got for number four? All right, number four. We're gonna take it back. I'm I'm feeling old school with this one. You know, it, it's um it's a thing because with the '80s and everything, the best thing, all Anderson, man. You know, yeah. Um, he's such a such a forgotten name when it comes to a lot of it because he was even big on the behind the scenes on like the early night. But another guy just like was rough and gruff and just really a, just a solid wrestler. Yeah, man. He was. Uh... What was the, the name of the tag team? Uh, the the Min- Minnesota Wrecking Crew. Crew. Right. Okay. And and, and then he, he he teamed. He was original member of the Four Horsemen, right? Yes. Yes. So originally, so him and Gene Anderson, who was the only real Anderson, <laughs> uh, were the original Minnesota. And then when Arn Anderson came in, it was him and Paul. Yeah. You know, and he adapted the Anderson name, and then all Arn, Tully, Flair, and JJ were the original horsemen. That's right, and yeah. So, so the Andersons are the Ole and Arn. They they teamed up, and, and what happened to Ole? Did he retire at some point during that run, or or what? Because he he moved to a different role, and then Arn started teaming with Tully. Uh, yeah, I think he uh I think he got into some heat with the office mm. 
and just said fuck you. Um, <laughs> sorry if I'm. No, no, no. Um, okay. uh, yeah, he just he just wasn't happy. He was bitter. I mean, this is what 1986, right? Yeah. And he's already back then. He was one of those guys going, "Oh, you're killing the business out there. Mm. You know, you're going out doing all this stuff." That's crazy to think about. Right. That's crazy to think about these guys in, you know, um, 1986, 87, and you see guys like Luthez and stuff like that going, oh, these guys are killing the business, you know, and they're just ruining it. It's not going to be able to, you know, progress. It's, it's wild to see that yeah. because you see it all the time nowadays with a lot of old guys. Um, but I think the thing now is that, I mean, you know, it might catch me heat, but I just don't think that this evolution – can continue for decades to come. Mm. Yeah. You know, that's, that's just a, that's an honest shot. Yeah. So Ole Anderson, um, I'm not super familiar with his stuff. What would you recommend for someone? Like what, what's his best feud or his best moment? Um, well, you know, a lot of those are probably like really candid, you know, on like YouTube, you can probably catch a lot of his again in the 1982 era of mid Atlantic. Mm. Uh, his tag team with Gene Anderson and stuff like that. Mm. Most of the stuff you'll see with Arn and like, you know, that early formation of the horsemen, I'd say that'd be really good to check. I think that's like 86, 87. Yeah. Uh, until about 88 or so. Mm. Um, a lot of the other stuff though, you know, it's, you know, house shows and stuff that's probably on like eight millimeter and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. Right. Uh, they didn't have the uh, weekly, you know, internet broadcasts of various shows back in 1982. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Right. That's a good pick. Ole Anderson. So I'm going to go with my number four now. My number four is uh, Jake the Snake Roberts. Hey. Jake, Jake the Snake, uh, I, I was familiar with a lot of the stuff he did in the early 90s, like his feud with Savage and the snake bite and all that stuff. But Oops, hell yeah. <laughs> the stuff he did in the 80s with Steamboat and then some of his stuff, uh, just, just his promos to me, like the guy like sort of revolutionized how to do a wrestling promo where you didn't have to be like Savage or Hogan or the Warrior and like just yelling and screaming into the mic, like just being real subtle and and talking like directly, like looking into the camera and like, he really kind of kind of took you over and like got you engaged in what he was trying to say. And, and it was just a different, different way of doing it. And I really, really dug that as a kid, he was a little bit scary to me, kind of a creepy guy. And then snakes in general, I, I never have been a big fan of. So mm -hmm. as, as a heel, he was a guy that as a, as a youngster, I was like, Oh my gosh. And seeing some of his stuff in the eighties, like his, his program where he DDT'd steamboat on the, the outside, like that was, yeah. uh, <laughs> that was some real stuff. And the, the DDT is a move that, you know, that was a finisher. That was like, that was it. That was it. If you got DDT and you were done. And, and now the DDT is just like a throwaway move. I feel like people use it. It's not even used to the same kind of effect, but Jake, the snake, when he delivered that thing, it was lights out. It's done. Yeah. You know, and he invented that too. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, I can throw it back. 1982 mid Atlantic was when Jake kind of like really started to kind of break in, you know, he would wear these like, red bell-bottom pants, pants and he had yeah. short hair and this big bushy mustache yeah um but yeah you know he was so it, it, he didn't need to exert you know because what he was doing was was makes you get closer to the tv it makes you bend your ear in it makes you really pay attention 
because if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss something, you know what I mean? And yeah. he wanted you to make sure that you did not miss anything. Right. And he and was a, he's a master of ring psychology, I think. hundred percent. You know, another guy, I've, I've been very fortunate to meet him oh, cool. and kind of just chat up a little bit with him, you know? And, um, the same thing though, dude, I mean, you know, he's, he works for AEW now. He's managing right. Lance Hoyt, I think. Yeah. And it's... I'm sure he's watching the ringside all the time. I see actually on Botchamania here and there. They'll just like show videos of him just like watching the matches and just laugh, you know, because, <laughs> yeah, you know, the psychology of things and yeah, throwing away a DDT, man, you DDT a guy, the guy was dead. Right. You imagine that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I- I'm happy that he seems to have, uh, I guess, relieved himself of his demons, at least for the moment that he is working with AEW. And I, I think like his wrestling mind, I'm surprised that WWE never really gave him a job. Like, if AEW has this this guy working not only on screen but I'm sure off screen, like just to have that guy in the locker room, even if he's not like mm-hmm. helping prepare the matches or whatever, helping with creative, just to have him there that so you can go ask him a question or you can you know ask for advice and have him just you know critique what you're doing. I, I feel like that's got to be a huge benefit for AEW, and I'm I'm happy 100%. to see Jake Jake back in action, so quote unquote, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure the demons are what stopped him from going um, to WWF or even he probably just didn't want to, you know, because yeah. the road schedule is heavy crazy. and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. the demons probably would come back heavier if he was on the road more. Um, but it is, it's good. It's good to see him, you know, alive, I guess, <laughs> instead of not, you know, seeing. Yeah. I watched uh, Beyond the Mat oh, yeah. not too long ago. Yeah, classic. And, uh, classic doc yeah that you know that brought back a lot of old memories but then i saw him at cauliflower when i met him and you know had a cup of coffee at all times he was he was nice you know and he was there talking to the boys and helping people out he actually lives in vegas now and he trains um people over there at the uh, snake pit academy hmm. that's pretty neat uh thank goodness for ddp huh ddp yoga <laughs> hey, hey hey rock and roll man real talk yeah <laughs> All right, uh, so what do you got for number three? Okay, number three, we're going to go into a different territory here. But you cannot doubt this man. He should be higher on the list, but I've got two more that I love too much. But Nick Bockwinkle. Oh, wow. Okay, he's another one who I think revolutionized the character aspect of wrestling. 100%. And same way, you know, he didn't, he, he wasn't over the top with his character. Yeah. He just was his himself. Right. You know? Yeah. They, they always right. say that about characters. And I think you look back at a guy like Nick Bockwinkle as maybe an early example of this is that the best characters, the characters that get over the best are the ones that are mostly themselves sort of amplified. And his, his character, you know, it was believable probably because that's what he was really like. 100%. Yeah, and he was an interesting, good worker, too. I've, I've seen a handful of his matches. I haven't delved deep into Nick Bockwinkle, but uh, a- AWA, right? That was his, his territory, yes. Minnesota? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, his father was a wrestler, um, Warren Bockwinkle, I believe was his name. So he was born into the business. But, yeah, you know, he was a collegiate wrestler, just very technical with it, so... And so was the AWA. That was a technical territory. You right. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, he, he was great. And when just kind of researching more into it, and he was the president for the Cauliflower Alley Cub, which does 
conventions in Vegas every year. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, another one I was lucky enough to meet before he passed. Um, but just, you know, him, Bobby Heenan and Ray Stevens as a tag team in the AWA. And then him as a world champion and working with like Jerry Lawler, you know what I mean? Such a clash because Memphis is a, is a whole nother thing. You know what I mean? Yep. And to mix that with the Minnesota vibe, was just such a, a big clash, but it worked so well because Nick Bockwinkle really understood his character, understood Jerry Lawler's character, and understood the competitive aspect of professional wrestling. Absolutely. Yeah, Nick Bockwinkle. Man, I remember I, I one of the compilation discs or a series of discs I got was uh, for AWA, and I watched a lot of old grainy television footage of AWA and Nick Bockwinkle definitely stood out as, as a guy, as a character from, from that era and a, and a worker for mm-hmm. sure. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Mm-hmm. He, he's class class, you know, and, uh, one of my buddies actually, uh, is a wrestler named funny bone. He was trained by Nick Bockwinkle hmm. and he actually told me a really cool story. One time he was doing some WWE extra work, um, at, at an arena and he was there with Nick Bockwinkle and so he was like walking around with them and, you know, Triple H and Kurt Angle, all these guys are coming up to Nick Bockwinkle, like super respectful, you know, super high, hi, sir. How are you, sir? This or that. And uh, he kind of turns to, to my buddy Funny Bone after they all walk away and he goes, you know, I don't understand this veteran thing that you have to, you know, you know, be so <laughs> humble to all these. The only, the only difference between me and you is that I've been doing this for a little bit longer, yeah. you know, so he was, such a humble guy down, too, down to earth great yeah. to hear because cool. you hate to hear when stuff goes to people's heads like that right all right it's a good pick nick bockwinkle okay so uh, my number three is i mentioned him earlier is bruiser brody hell yeah bruiser brody to me sort of is a ahead of his time monster of a wrestler i feel like a guy like braun Strowman should be watching his bruiser brody tapes you know and sort Mm -hmm. of trying to channel that kind of a monster uh but he you know other than being a really big guy he was sort of agile for his size and he sort of i think was part of that revolution of the hardcore kind of wrestling that like abdullah and maybe terry funk and some of those guys in the 80s were doing but like swinging that chain around and going down work in puerto rico and work in japan and like really getting in there uh with this kind of the blood and the the uh the outside brawling and that kind of stuff like he was definitely ahead of his time and i i didn't know anything about the man until i watched this um what we talked about earlier the the dark side of the ring until i watched the documentary Mm -hmm. on him and to see his wife and his son and like see clips of him just talking like a normal human being, it's like, man, this seemed like a, a, a an intelligent, good, you know, hardworking guy just wanted to provide for his family. And then he would be like a consummate professional could turn on his character and just just be that that guy. And it's just really fascinating to see that sort of the dual dynamics that someone can have. And it was sad to learn more of the story of that. The, the, of his death and how that whole thing went down. And I, I can't believe that, um, what's his name? The invader didn't, didn't go to jail for that, you know? Yeah, totally. 
And, and then, you know, just nothing nothing came of it, which is the worst part. Right. The fact that you have a guy like Tony Atlas who claims to have seen the whole thing and they didn't even bring him down for the, the trial or whatever, it's like, okay. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. But for, for Bruiser Brody, uh, I, I actually, again, didn't really even know much about him until probably the last 15 or 20 years when I would start trading tapes or getting, getting DVDs in the mail. And I got this whole Bruiser Brody comp from Japan and there's a lot of cool stuff. He went an hour with Ric Flair and then he, he would do like, mm-hmm. uh, these crazy brawls and things, uh, matches with Stan Hansen and things like, uh, he's very fun to watch. And I, I think a lot of the eighties wrestling for people sometimes is a little slow, but this guy was not mm-hmm. that way. Like his stuff was, was always entertaining just because of his personality, I think. Yeah. He was always on a high point, you know? And, he really, and that's where, you know, like you said, you kind of get to understand the man Frank Goodich, and you see he is a uh, caring, respectful man. But then you see, you know, King Kong Brody, Bruiser Brody, and you see this animal who, you know, the us and, and mm-hmm. just the boots and the fr- and moving like that, you know, which was not, it wasn't really around. It, it, to be that, you'd have to be like the missing link or something, a complete, right. huge anomaly of a character. And to be Bruiser Brody, he really kind of hit, um, dug into that character and saw, like, oh, these people in Japan are really, like, afraid of me. You know what I mean? <laughs> They're afraid of me right now. Let's yeah. turn it up. Let's let's make myself a, you know, a phenomenon with it. Because at some points, it wasn't even the wrestling. Just them being close to Bruiser Brody scared them. You know what I mean? And he had to live with that at the same time. This is things I think about all the time. It's like these guys that were living these characters – we're living this life no matter what, you know what I mean? And yeah. if you wanted to just be, you know, Frank for two hours, you couldn't, you had to be Brody on the road and stuff like that. Right. And, um, I actually saw a interview that's somewhere on YouTube. I can't remember exactly. Again, this comes up so much. I'm kind of shocked, but again, I think it's from 1982 <laughs> and, uh, he is literally laying out, the direction of the wrestling business and where it would go with Vince and where it would go beyond Vince, you know? And it was such a, like an odd thing to watch that. in you know, the last few years on YouTube and have it be filmed in 1982. And the man was so smart with it Mm -hmm. that he got to that, you know what I mean? And so it really is tragic for, you know, him to get stabbed in a, fucking shower in puerto rico over some fucking money right you know what i mean because he was just trying to feed his family mm-hmm. you know the man didn't want to go to puerto rico probably and yeah. if he did he certainly didn't want to be in that damn shower you know <laughs> right. um so it's it's sad but he left a, a a damn legacy which is crazy because you always go back to look at a lot of these guys and you think they've wrestled for so long but you know brody's you know, peak career was probably only like five years. Couple at, years. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, his wife is again, really nice. And she's, she's great to let his story be told. And, you know, she goes to the conventions and sees all his old friends and stuff like that. She really does a good job at keeping the Bruiser Brody name afloat. And I really respect that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Bruiser Brody, another one of the many, Names in wrestling who were cut down too soon. Hey, what do you got for number two? Man, you know, I've got uh, the, 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 the higher we get to, um, you know, number one, I just have so many more that come into my mind. And I really, 
I'm going to save the one that I'm going to do a split number one because <laughs> I think it deserves it. If uh, that's okay. Okay. Yeah. But coming in number two, man, you got to give it up to Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. Wow. That's not a pull I was expecting. That's cool. Which Midnight that, Express variation are you referring to? Well, you know, the, the, the purist in me is talking about Dennis Condry, Condry. and Bobby Eaton. Yeah. But I also loved Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton. So I'll accept either. <laughs> but um, the more and more I listen to, you know, Jim Cornette's knowledge or whatever, he really, like, gives Dennis Condry everything for creating the style and the aspect and everything. And, you know, Bobby Eaton is just probably one of the greatest wrestlers alive. So he really was yeah. like, you can put him in any role and he'll do good. Yep. But uh, the sculpt was really from Dennis Condry. Yeah, the Midnight Express. They were a quintessential 80s tag team. And Jim, Jim Cornette is sort of one of the early revolutionaries in the managerial position, him and his tennis racket. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the feud, the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express and just all, all those the iterations uh, of... I mean, if I could put that, that would be it too. You know, number two would just be Rock and Roll Express versus Midnight Express. <laughs> Yeah, like because that is '80s right there. Absolutely '80s, and really revolutionizing what tag team wrestling could be. Mm-hmm. And both those teams yeah, in general, to the fullest extent. And you know, and it, it's just uh, it's just crazy because at that time, you know, tag team wrestling was so divided and stuff like. But like, they were so crisp, and they knew what to do. They knew how to get the fans angry. You know, they made yep. the rock and roll like. You just go back and you watch that, and it's like, man, they're so good. Yeah. And it's such an art to how good it is. I totally agree. Those That was some education for me, watching those matches, some of those matches that I saw rock and roll in the midnights. Um, and hearing Jim Cornette talk about them through the years in shoot interviews or whatever. I actually haven't listened to Jim Cornette's podcast. I don't even need to get on that. Uh, but uh, it, He's got some hot takes, I'll say, you know, but if, <laughs> if you... Like I say, if you sit through a lot of the waving through stuff, the golden nuggets of information that he drops are great. Yeah. Well, he's definitely, he was there at some vital moments in the history of pro wrestling. So, uh, but yeah, for, uh, Midnight Express. So you're down with Stan Lane too? Yeah, yeah, I dig Stan Lane. I dig Stan. He was, you know, he was big in the Fantastics, I think, right? right. Or no, the Fabulous Ones. Uh, one of the, yeah, he was in a different team for sure. I forget. Uh, was it the Fabulous Ones? Yeah, the Fabulous ones? ones with Steve Kern. Okay. Yeah, Skinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, he, he, when they brought him in, you know, he was like the uh, the the good-looking guy. <laughs> uh, Bob, well, Bobby it's funny Eaton, because... Uh, Bobby Eaton, great wrestler, but not the biggest looker in the world, you know? Not at all. And and that's what's funny was the original one, Dennis Condry was supposed to be the looker of the group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Different time. <laughs> Different time. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Midnight Express. It's, that was a good pull. And I, it's not something that I thought of. My, my number two, number one are going to be like, you know, generic, you know, easy answers. So it's, it's cool. You picked out Midnight Express. I, I like that. Hell yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go with my number two now. And we've mentioned him a little bit earlier, but my number two is Macho Man Randy Savage. Couldn't have it without him. <laughs> yeah. Randy Savage, to me, 
is like the the definition of a pro wrestler. You know, like he's he's got the character, he's over the top with his voice and his delivery. The guy in the ring, he really sort of had this charisma and this sort of way he carried himself that was just different than everybody else in his his glasses and his when he was the king and all the stuff when he was a heel and going crazy with Miss Elizabeth and Hulk Hogan like all, all that stuff to me is is what pro wrestling is all about like he really he really was a great pro wrestler in my mind 100% 100% if you open up a dictionary and you look at the word pro wrestler macho man randy savage just pictured can definitely be placed right there yeah, like when, when I was a kid, Hulk Hogan was all the rage or whatever, you know, but I was always a Savage guy because to me, Savage just always had a little bit of a more cool factor to him. Yeah, definitely. And, he was just, you know, and, you know, I was a little, like I said, the 90s, right? So he was already, he was doing in-ring stuff and the Jake thing was big, but he was he was a personality more at that age, yeah. you know? I, I really uh, enjoyed his commentary, by the way. Like, you mentioned WrestleMania oh, yeah. 9, but that, that, like, 93, 94 era when he was doing commentary, I thought was great. It was wonderful. You know, he brought so much to it, you know? Uh, one of my favorites, actually, there's this... I couldn't... I saw it one time, and I haven't been able to ever find it again, and it's, it's kind of driving me up a wall, but there's an episode of Raw where I think it's Vince... Rob Bartlett and Macho Man, and they're uh, they're like watching something happen, and Vince goes, "Oh no!" or uh, uh, they're like, "Oh oh!" and then Macho Man goes, "Oh no!" <laughs> like it wasn't an "Oh yeah," he said, "Oh, oh no!" no. <laughs> oh man, that's something definitely to try to find. <laughs> I know, I, I like, I it just blacked out. Too. It was so good. Oh my gosh. Oh my! Oh no! <laughs> oh man, he was great. And even when, like, I don't know why he didn't work more during that era. I don't know if he was injured or something. But like his work with Crush the year after that, like the their mm-hmm. it, it falls count anywhere match. Like he he brought out the emotion in that. And even in WCW, he had some some good moments for sure. Uh, like I think DDP and maybe against Raven and some guys like he still had a lot of gas in the tank. And I think WWE just made him sort of, you know, put him in the back burner with commentary and stuff, even though there yeah, was some think, comedic gold there. But <laughs> I think there was a, some contractual things that was up with it, you know, hmm. and you know, it's rumored that he slept with Stephanie and that's why right. he got kicked out of WWF in the or 94. Yeah. But I think, I think Macho was always like, you know, some of the guys that went from WWF to WCW kind of like were at that peak when they hit WCW and they maybe rode that peak and then fell off, right? Yeah. I'm thinking like maybe Kevin Nash, for example. Yeah. He was on the rise and he was diesel and he was hot and then he went to WCW and he was at a peak. Yeah. Personally, I don't ever really feel like he went above that peak and then came back down. He just rode it for a few years and then down. Yeah. Macho Man was at a constant rise, right? And maybe plateaued at WCWF for a second. But when he went to WCW, it continued to go up. Yep. You know, he he evolutionized Macho Man again and again. You know, and then the NWO Macho Man. And then the, like, 1999 like Macho Man when he put on, like, 20 pounds of steroids, you know, and dated <laughs> Gorgeous George. Yeah. Spider-Man um, Macho Man. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, you yeah. get three minutes with me. <laughs> that was good. Uh, but to take it back to the 80s, what I remember in addition to the promos was his match with Steamboat at WrestleMania 3 and then WrestleMania 4, which is an often, I think, overlooked WrestleMania where he won the tournament to win the title um, and sort of started that whole, it was like a started the program with Hulk Hogan, basically, you mm-hmm. know, and that yeah, whole the beginning of the uh, mega powers, the, the whole, yeah, mega powers era from 88, 89 or whatever with Hogan and then WrestleMania five with Hogan. Like that was, that was good stuff. You know, Savage was, he, he could, he could sell, uh, uh, a, a feud, you know? Yeah. And it was cool how they did the SummerSlam angle too. You know, and they brought Zeus in yeah. and you know, Zeus needed someone. And I felt that macho was that good role for that because, yeah. you know, um, Hogan had his thing and macho, and then bringing the Zeus, it just, it really uh, mixed very well together. And Macho was just, he was, you know, it's weird to say it, right? Because there's the uh, Piper to Hogan, right? But then Macho Man was that same character later on in the 80s. Mm-hmm. He was that Piper of like, Piper was the 85 to WrestleMania. Yeah. He was, um, there damn i just realized that roddy piper didn't make my list <laughs> he didn't make mine either i, I thought about it uh, honorable honorable mention to roddy piper right yeah there you go uh, so well then let's 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 hear your number one then number well, one like i said i feel like i have to split it right yeah I'm, I'm gonna split it maybe like a 70 30 right and we'll go 30 percent jerry the king lawler oh wow and then 70% Terry Funk. Because Terry Funk is the greatest wrestler of all time. All right. That's that's interesting. Kind of a hot take a little bit. Uh, oh, yeah. But I, I, I definitely am a big Terry Funk fan for sure. His, his work with Flair there in the late 80s, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of in my mind also – brought an element of hardcore, you know, to the, the main, the mainstream. But uh, what, what's your favorite memories about Terry Funk? It's just, you know, I mean, the more I research it and stuff, you know, I mean, he's my number one wrestler that I've studied and maybe probably applied to my own style from over the years. Right. Because, you know, you had the sixties, Terry Funk, you had the seventies, the NWA Terry Funk, and you had the eighties. Right. And so he was kind of coming out of that and like a lot of the early 80s was him in japan you know and he was huge in japan him and dory right and they'd go to all japan you know what i mean and they would do these tours and like that alone which was awesome because watching his matches with like jumbo saruta Mm -hmm. you know and um hase and just like that kind of clan was really cool and then in the mid 80s he went to wwf you know and he kind of really emphasized on that texan and he had Haas with him, which I'm pretty sure was just Dory. Yeah. And, uh, yes. you know, he, he went there and then kind of, you know, flipped around a little bit in the mids and then landed in WCW. So he really traveled all the territories. Yeah, he was a journeyman. Time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a complete journeyman. And not like, you know, Arn Anderson is a, um, a carpenter. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's a term just saying you solid hand. You can get a good match out of anybody in this one. As much as Terry Funk is a great carpenter, he also has that ability to be a top guy, you know what I mean? Yeah. And just really is just like, 
a complete journeyman and total package. And it's crazy because even after the 80s, he was still revolutionizing into the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, the whole ECW run. Uh, yeah, and then the 30% for Lawler, you just got to give it to Lawler, man, because he just, you know, every Monday night in, in Memphis, Tennessee, he sold out all these, you know, um, all these shows weekly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Guys can't even draw a thousand people to a show once a month nowadays. You right. know what I mean? These guys were doing like 15,000 people a week. Yeah. And that is incredible. And the, the Andy Kaufman stuff, you know? Right. That was, I was going to mention that, like that was a whole ahead of its time kind of thing too. getting Andy Kaufman or legit celebrity involved in uh, mm-hmm. pro wrestling and the David Letterman spot and all that stuff. But uh, Jerry Lawler, most people today just know him as the guy who does used to do commentary, but that guy was a pretty mm-hmm. ruthless wrestler back in the eighties. Was he not? Oh, huge. Yeah. He was very, you know, and he was, a, he wasn't a wrestler, right? Like he didn't apply. He was not a, a Nick Bockwinkle, mm-hmm. you know, I even think their match is a little odd because, you know, Jerry Lawler was pure passion, pure emotion. He was a brawler. You know what I mean? He really just got his ass beat. And then, the fans were so behind the king, you know, and that he'd come back and um, him versus Terry Funk, I think got the first five-star match ever. And I've just watched it the other really? day and, oh yeah. Um, Cornette reviewed it on his podcast actually, and kind of broke it down piece by piece. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, so much emotion going into it. And then, you know, he's coming back and he's rocking and the crowd's like, you're watching your kids jump up and then Terry Funk cuts him back down and he just bleeds the emotion out, you know? And that's like, you know, most, most people today don't even know what the hell that means. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's, I, I have, I, again, I have not seen a lot of the old Jerry Lawler stuff and this is going to make me want to go back and find some stuff on YouTube. But I, I, I read his book years ago. And I know, I know he's kind of a quintessential territory kind of guy. Then the Memphis thing was like, that was his spot. Like he's, he didn't, he want to run for mayor of Memphis. Like he's like a celebrity out there. Oh yeah. He's, uh, oh yeah. Yeah. He has his own little, uh, he has his own couple barbecue restaurants out there on Beale street and stuff. Yeah. He's the, he's the modern day King of Memphis, Tennessee. That's for sure. <laughs> that's crazy. Oh, well yeah. Jerry Lawler. And I'm, I'm sure back in the day, his promos were still, awesome because that was one of the things i think he was known for in his wwf run was how he could talk you know oh yeah oh his promos were um, above and beyond you know he scathing you, you'll find some good stuff you go down a jerry lawler rabbit hole on youtube yeah. you'll find you'll find some good stuff i guarantee you. definitely going to be doing that so th- those are your <laughs> your your number one a and one b you got terry funk and you got jerry lawler i'd say so so my number one is a more generic pick and I'm curious to hear your take. And my number one is nature boy, Ric Flair. Gotta go. <laughs> uh, you know, he's, he's the, the easy pick, I think because he was 16 time world champion and he had all these great feuds and, and moments. And he's the kind of guy who uh, I saw this a little bit when I was watching some of your stuff where like, I, 
I, I was describing it to my my partner and was telling her, you know, what he's doing is he's he's taking a lot of punishment and then he comes back and he gets the win. I think Ric Flair did a lot of that. Like he, he would take a guy on an hour long journey where he would get the crap beat out of him and basically almost do no offensive moves and then somehow pull out the victory or at least get to mm-hmm. the time limit draw. And he just had a knack for doing that kind of stuff in addition to being the promo master and having the whole persona styling and profiling and and all that stuff. You know, I think the combination of how he worked, how he looked and then how um, his character developed made him sort of like the, another version of a quintessential pro wrestler type. Yeah, no, he, I'm, he nails it, you know, and I, I almost left off my list cause I almost felt that that was going to come, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and, it, and he deserves it, man. You know, like, you talk about Terry Funk, you talk about Nick Bockwinkle, you talk about Jerry Lawler, you talk about them. All those guys were right there with Ric Flair, right? But Ric Flair was on top that whole time. Right. You know? Yeah. And, you know, you got, like, you got, you, the man is, is a, uh, a, just a bona fide legend. Yeah. You know, because now, even now in pop culture, people know Ric Flair because not only just as a wrestler, but all these rappers are quoting Ric Flair. They grew up idolizing Ric Flair. Yeah. And now they're millionaires. Right. You know? And they're telling them, yo, I got my drip from Ric Flair. You know what I mean? Yeah. He did a he did a um an episode of Stone Cold's podcast on the network and he said that LeBron James told Ric Flair that he was the reason, single handedly, that he didn't get into bad stuff. And that he went home and watched Ric Flair wrestle and that's what helped fuel him to become the man he is today. That's so crazy, you know? LeBron. That's that is that is bona fide, you yeah, know. And yeah. and you know, obviously, what Ric Flair was talking about and doing during that time weren't the most ideals, right? But he did it, man, and he was another journeyman because he was doing all of the same areas that Terry Funk was doing, but as the champion, right? He's you know the, the traveling and champion, NWA. He he's the boss, man. He is the he is the goat, and as much as I want to. You know, I give Terry Funk the nod. That's personal preference. Right. Because you have, you know, Ric Flair, Terry Funk, Dusty Rhodes. You know, you got right. so many of these guys. That's that another are, name we, we left off the of list. Time. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, Dusty Rhodes. We didn't even mention him, you know. so Yeah, and, you know, that's what I mean. It's like to nail down five is such a hard thing. I couldn't. Yeah. If I would have sat there and had to put those names in five, I, it would have took me forever. I'd probably still be doing it. So yeah. I thought it would be better just to kind of plug in, you know, these guys. I have like a list of 20 that I pull from all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. But you got to give honorable mentions to guys like Roddy Piper. Absolutely. Dusty Rhodes. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, Sergeant Slaughter, even. Slaughter, you know? just absolutely. Like, um, it's, the 80s was such a great period of wrestling. The, the, and Von Erichs and the more Free More often than not. Yeah, yeah. Von Erichs. Dude, just... You can go on for hours, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because then you can hit them like the low key people that people don't remember or anything. You know, Hercules Hernandez and stuff like that. You <laughs> there know, you go. yeah. And Bam Bam Bigelow coming in out of the eighties, and yeah, who knows? Cool. You know, uh, Bill Eady, man, the Mister, you know, the mass wrestling superstar, and then he became Axe and yeah, Demolition. Demolition you know, Axe. like yeah, man, yeah, uh, we could go it, on it's forever. A <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, maybe we'll do another list, some something similar down the line. But, hey, I really appreciate you coming on here and doing this. And uh, wh- where can people find you on the Internet? Or h- how can we connect with you? 
Yeah, you know, I'm on all my social medias. Um, I'm mainly more uh, active on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me there. I'm just at Levi Shapiro. Okay. Uh, I usually pop up. I think of just the handles, the only one. Sometimes I get confused for this really smart scientist, uh, <laughs> but that's not me. <laughs> and then uh, I also have a pro wrestling tea store if anybody wants to pick up a t shirt. All right. That's prowrestlingtees.com backslash the loop. Um, no spaces, all lowercase. Okay. So check that out. Check him out on Twitter, Instagram. Check his pro wrestling tees out. It's Levi Shapiro, Timeless. And I assume you don't have any any shows lined up at the moment, but w- what do you think the hit or the future holds for, for you guys in the independent scene right now? Well, you know, I'm not really expecting anything to happen for the rest of the year, to be honest. Oh, wow. I think if anything happens, it might be maybe a show just to, you know, hey, we can, we will. But, you know, all serious planning for a lot of the stuff, I'd say, is probably um, moved over to next year, to be honest. And, um, you know, just follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram and kind of keep up to date and stuff like that. And hopefully you'll see me around, you know. And you got to get me a once-over CD if you got one still, by the way. I, I, wanna, I do. Wanna... I, I can, I can oh, hook dude. you up. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I need to revisit that. Um, yeah, and... Once you start working again, like I, I, I have neglected the Northern California pro wrestling independent scene, and I'd love to come out and watch you live sometime. Yeah, man, definitely. I'll be in touch. Awesome, man. Well, uh, this is Levi Shapiro, and we just had a great episode. Uh, thank you again. 